or that's the first step is get like you want to get everything on the table and get everything out of them that we can because often of all or 90 percent of the information it's there there's just been a little blip there's just been a little a little door not opened or a little path not taken that's seen and tendon compliance for stiffness lagged behind muscle strength or some muscles get stronger but one other muscle lag behind and it may think all the secondary imbalances have been generated it's now leading to another symptomology you know so just just getting all of the information out of them or table is the most important thing because often then it's a matter of well what if we did this and there's your answer Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host and today my guest is Dr. Steve Saunders. He's a science and medical consultant for a leading sporting teams all around the world and founder of Kanga Tech. Our key topic for today's chat will be about integrating performance and medical science for team success. Uh, g'day, Steve. How you going, mate? Thanks for, for jumping on. Jake, thanks so much for the invite. I know we've been trying to make this happen for a little bit of a time now, so it's great that the stars have aligned and we're finally doing it. Thank you. Yeah, we got there. There was a bit of back and forth, but yeah, well worth it. No doubt we're going to have a good chat. So thank you for jumping on. Thank you for your time. And for, for those, no doubt, majority of listeners, whether you're listening in live or, or those listening to the podcast, know who you are, mate. But for those that don't, do you mind providing a, a background of everything you've done to date or the, the key highlights, uh, I guess? Background. Look, I'm well and truly crossed the 50 years of age, mate. So the background's more extensive than I'd like to be, Jack. I graduated from Sydney Uni as a physio back in 87, worked as a clinician for about 10 years, and then probably hit a little bit of a spot in my career where I'd, like, I didn't know anything. And I was particularly interested in lumbocoity control and athletic performance and hamstring and groin injuries. And I felt that we were pretty much to prescribing exercise based on the architecture of muscle without really knowing which exercise programs are likely to be most efficacious. So, you know, I reached out to an early mentor in my career in Jenny McDonald and I said, I think I need to do some study or this kind of enough. And she said, well, you should do a PhD. And she put me on to Professor Paul Hodges, who was a, a, another fantastic mentor through my career. So I completed a PhD doing that part, part-time over a nine-year period while still running a clinic and working with all these sporting things around the world. Yeah, busy time. And then it was, yeah, yeah, it was very, very busy. I'm not, I'm not sure that my wife will let her forgive me for the amount of all-nighters I had to pull when writing manuscripts, but anyway. So it was, it was from there though, Jack, that probably a consulting thing started. For me, I think um, I'll approach while on the sporting teams to help them deal with complex groin or complex hamstring problems and the research continued postdoc. But the consulting then started. So then I was in this sort of happy medium where I was doing a bit of credit time and sort of consulting and still doing some research. And after doing that for a while, I was then approached by the North Melbourne Football Club by Brent Scott. And he asked me to come and be the high performance manager at North Melbourne Football Club late in 2020. So I undertook that role and had a wonderful seven years with the, with the club. What a 
What a great club and a wonderful club today. Hayden, the people all working with it was a privilege. Then in 2017, I moved back to Adelaide for family reasons. It was time to get the kids home or we were going to get Melbourneites forever. And uh, I did a year of just consulting overseas from Adelaide and, and still helping North Melbourne from a distance. And that's where I got used to achieving the travel and the consultancy thing cutting back into the fray. Then I did a couple of years as a head of medicine and science for the Adelaide Gross Football Club. First year crossed over with Don Pike and his team, and then the second year crossed over with Matty Nitz and his team. So it was great to see those differing approaches and the evolution in the Adelaide program there. Um, and the second year, obviously, was the first COVID year. So I was in a role in Adelaide when I was supposed to be you know, consulting 20, 25 hours a week and helping head up the medical and science program. But because I was also part of it, COVID skeleton program, it would roll your sleeves up all in, do everything from the science to the washing the Gatorade bottles. And so we, we were all hands on deck in Adelaide there in that year. And it was during that year, to be honest, Chris Scott started calling me and saying, listen, what do you think about working with cats? Chris and I wanted to work together as colleagues for 12 years. We almost ended up at the cat back in 2011 before I went to North Belgrade, having known Craig. Chris went, who was a player, so Chris Scott's first came and saw me in the chronic wound problem as a player. So anyway, Chris was pretty dogged with his approach in, during that second year at the Crows. And halfway through the year, it just became pretty evident to me that I needed a role in AFL. I still wanted to work within the AFL, but I needed a role that would give me the sex to still be able to travel overseas and season and do a bit of consulting and do it. Chris was really on the side foot about preventing the cats and my little one that would embrace that. And so I made the decision to come and work with Chris and his team. And I'd, I'd worked with Scott Mershie before, and I'd worked with some of the players at the cats before. I'm an advisory level looking at complex cases in the year So it was difficult to leave Adelaide, but it just felt like the right move at the time for me to come to the law. And then I was, you know, timed it well, haven't I? As luck would have it, I've uh, rolled into a very, very successful club with a wonderful list and a wonderful coaching staff, wonderful medical and performance staff, and I sat back and watched the team win a grand final with their oldest team in NFL history. So credit to the Cats, and it was a pleasure to sit on the bench, and that's my journey to date, I think, Jack. Yeah, yeah, thank you. No, really appreciate you sharing that with us, and it gives us good context for what we're about to discuss. And obviously, you've had a range of different sports that you've worked in, either at a full-time basis or, or consultant in terms of how to collaborate as a high-performance medical team and also with the, with the coaches and the athletes. But you mentioned there a few times working with complex cases, whether it be groin, hamstring injuries, either individual athletes seeking you out or coaches or, or perhaps teams to, to come in and, and give them feedback. What have been some things or common, if there, if there has been common trends that you've noticed over the, that you now try and you know, implement in your philosophy when it comes to complex issues and, and how to prevent them? Wow, uh, gee, we could we could we could talk to days on that one, couldn't we? Because it, you know, it's always it's always very different. All these these cases are always very different. You know, sometimes the referral source is the athlete himself, or it's the head physio, or the head doctor, or the head of street, or the head coach, or the GM of football. So even even that creates a dynamic that you need to be cognizant of. You know, if it's it. Overly anxious or not overly, the anxious athlete whose career is on the line. If he's a driver of this, whereas he feels like a puppet being dragged around from one person to another. And I don't mean that in a bad way, because that's when you need multiple opinions to, to sort of sort these problems out. As opposed to if it's the 
head coach that's facilitated the consultation or if it's a head doctor. There's a different level of initial communication that's required and then different sorts of digging to try to pull all of the necessary information together. And that's one of the things you need to do in the early stages is I call them imagine-if sessions, for want of a better word. I hope, hope John Lennon doesn't take offence to that. But, but, but it's, sort of, it's sort of whiteboard sessions where you get all the key stakeholders, including the athlete in the room, whiteboard and what's happened, why might that have happened, what if we did this, what if we did that, what if we tried what seems to resonate as having worked but get a bit of a dead end, and what, what were we really wedded to that we thought was going to work that appears not to be. So is there some other factor affecting that intervention or is that intervention reads this unit by date. There just needs to be a bit of extra progression in a different or the, or the same direction to get this athlete over the hump. So the, so the key things are just pulling everyone together and having that initial whiteboard imaging obsession. A lot of we've done, let's really flesh it out. And one of the things I've learned from that session is the minutia matters. So, oh yeah, we've done this sort of loading of this tendon or that and I'll talk in general oh yeah we've done isometric loading or we've done asymptomatic loading or we've, we've done whatever and just really drilling down into the sets the reps the spatial and temporal characteristics of the loading how heavy is it being how much time under tension how many days between the dosage what other activities happen between the doses like getting into the granularity of that and just creating discussion often helps people see windows for directional change that can be really really important to just getting this guy over the hump and often that sort of discussion brings out the sort of diagnostic and comorbidity discussion around well we you know we sort of would largely this but we think there is a little bit of this in this condition yeah there's some neural issues going on or it's 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 not that this guy's just attend in the path we think there's some other things going on with his health or whatever so just fleshing out all of that really helps you pull together a master plan for want of a better word and making sure all of the key stakeholders are part of that and have been heard in that and then we all had a chance to say what what's been done and what they really believe in and what i'll sound is if i say anything too soon all I do is getting away of already and getting all that information out. So early doors, it's about just get, getting, getting it all on the table and then doing a bit of a needs analysis from there. No, it does. Yeah, I like that. Imagine if what it what it yeah, yeah. What, and and that, and, and, and makes a lot of sense that you've got to first get context when you're consulting. How did consultation start? You mentioned that it can come from all different angles within the club, but when you were before you had your first consultant role did that was that something that you brought to the table for the club that, that perhaps they wanted you on a part-time basis and you mentioned no, yeah no no it's a it's a great question it's some really funny story so i was finished doing nine years of nerding out doing a phd and i'm back at my clinic in adelaide and i would travel to the university of queensland to select periods gather data and work on projects and and i'm working at the clinic i'm doing some consulting with track and field and some sporting teams. And then I would do a little bit of guest lecturing at La Trobe University for their sports video course. And one of the young physios there, sorry, I was just rude. The room light has gone up. Oh, the sense of light, Catherine. Hang on, hang on. Here we go. I'm coming back. Now? I'm back. There we go. Look out. I'm back. And one of the young physios there was working, doing some part-time work at the Brisbane Lions. And... They had some play with some groin issues and happened to mention to the physio, hey, this 
this bald guy back in Melbourne did this talk and raised a, raised a few new things that might be worth listening to. So Lee Matthews then said, and the physio that the Lions decided it would be worth sending Chris Scott across to Sydney. So really, in terms of getting an AFL consultancy that started with the Brisbane Lions back in the and it started with the likes of Chris Scott, Solomon Black, Jonathan Brown, Vola, all of those sort of guys. So they said, Chris, yeah, we... Yeah, no, we're, hey, was, but what, what are what are full leagues? Like, I'm, I'm so lucky to do something that I think is really challenging and interesting, and I love doing it, and not a day of it has ever so much job, you know? And to, and, and to work with these wonderful athletes who are also great human beings and great people is, is, is just a privilege. So it, the Brisbane thing would be they'd send a player over to me for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, or I would go into Brisbane for a week or two and look at, and bunch of players for them so just sort of started and then word got around a little bit and then other clubs like Melbourne or whatever would bring your players over or send players over and it sort of got to a point where in little old Adelaide I think nine AFL clubs I consulted to before and the gig at North Melbourne just coming back to the integration piece really the gig at North Melbourne the reason why it was so enticing was it was Brad and he, Chris, and they were on the same wavelength. We had a really good relationship. And Brad was saying, look, we need to integrate these modules. We need we need strength and conditioning and physio and medical and skill acquisition and coach. So, look, we need everyone on this. So we need someone that can just sort of help bind these groups and all and so much to offer to try to get the most out of them. So really... It, it was not actively sought. The city that I sought was knowledge, and that was a PhD. And that's I still say to this day, it's the reason why I lost my hair and the reason why I still get grumpy sometimes. But, yeah, so I, I went to seeking knowledge and this other stuff sort of followed me, really. On your career, like highlights that spring in front of mind that you're proud of? Oh, wow. So a Sheffield Shield went back in the mid-90s. It was great. So I was doing a sort of performance of medical role for that. What are now the Reebacks back in the mid 90s? Jamie Sidmans was the sort of captain coach of that team there. And we had a wonderful team that first year we made the Shield final at the Gamma and got absolutely pulsed. We were all out for nothing in the first league and we watched the Brisbane team just smack us. And, but then the next year we managed to secure a Shield final at home. And what a great, I could talk about that game ever, but we ended up drawing the game to win the Shield title. And it was, a, it was a hang on because Adam Gilchrist had come out and scored another double century and our players just had to survive. So we went down to the last wicket with 60 balls to go. Had Peter McIntyre and Shane George. And 50 balls later, we won that game. And we earlier in the day, players like Jamie Sidden batted for four hours to score one run, which was totally against his character. But that was what was called for on the day, you know. So... The Sheffield Shield game was a highlight. My time at North Melbourne, just in general, was a highlight. Making two premiums with that club and getting beaten resoundingly once by Sydney, but then coming back the next year, making the premium again and getting beaten by West Coast after being sort of 30 on points up at the end of the first quarter. I think we were that week. That was a highlight, but heartbreaking. And then to have worked in the industry all that time, and then finally getting the chance to sit on a bench and watch Geelong win the grand final last year. And in, you know, worked so, worked, worked so hard for so many years and beat so close, but defeat and just absolutely nail it the way they did. 
Yeah. And yeah. probably the other highlights for me have been just consulting in the NBA and the HPL, some of the big clubs, having the opportunity to do, to do that has been great. And 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 highlights are the individual complex coaches. The really challenging cases that come in where they've sort of been broken for a long time. And to sit down with a player and a team and nut it out and get it right. I mean, all of those individual ones uh, and real highlights for me on, on the individual and the team level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And before we get into the topic, the last one, most significant challenges that you've faced and how have you grown from it as a, either personally or professionally? Yeah. I suppose one of the early challenges, and we've all faced this and we'll continue to face this, but you know, when I, when I came to North Melbourne, it was a wonderful club, but it wasn't Highland Ridge. And I was sort of coming out of the research laboratory. I was used to research grade measurement and objectivity. And I'm coming into a football club and I'm wanting to measure things. I'm wanting to measure them accurately. And I've got to fit within a football club workflow. And we didn't have a lot of equipment to measure. And we didn't have the systems and processes in place. And just working out how they were going to get the level of accurate measurement taken to profile and monitor the players and work it within a full program. You know, we're not we're not in a research laboratory now where I can spend four hours on any one on one subject, inserting fine wire and using an inductance perfigma graph and 3D motion analysis in ground force plays. Like we don't have that. Like how we're gonna profile and monitor quickly and accurately and integrate that program that that was it was a massive challenge, and fortunately, the culture at North Melville was very open and growth mindset. And we were under work and went free. One of the one of the great things that happened there is we started welding metal frames together and bolting them to the floor and fixing certain party strain gauges with dynamometers to these things and, and tracking different isometric strength measures with very spartan rudimentary equipment. And it went through that journey that I got connected with a group through the club called BRE Mathematics, world-leading math company that do a lot of work with Google and the like. And I sat down with them and took them through our Excel pivot tables and this, this dynamometry we were basically building ourselves. And through the relationship between myself and the club and BRE Mathematics, came this, this system that was a portable isometric dynamometry frame that could measure strength in any muscle from the neck to the big toe. And a software system around it that flag risk and flag changes in athletes automatically once he made everything so much easier for us. So we didn't have to have two PhD students putting stuff in Excel and coming in flagging things with the doc and the video. It became all automated. So we built this system for the club. And we only ever built it for North Melbourne. It was very hush and very quiet. We kept it in house. And then through some consulting I was doing overseas with the likes of the San Antonio Spurs and others, you know, we started getting some of these overseas clubs saying, how do you measure that? What is that? Can we have one of those? Yeah. And that's, and, and, you know, and that's why I go back to the club and I say, well, and guys, I think these, the product here we're selling, should you, should you want to? And that's where Kangatech came from. So I got them, solution, you know, seven, ten year, ten year process, born out of just the needs of a football club. How do we measure stuff really accurately? really quickly and, and do it in a way that actually systemizes things and makes them easier for the staff, doesn't create more, more work for the staff. Because a lot of staff are pushed to the max. We're always thinking, oh, measure something else. I'll report something else. And it's really important, you know, these tests that we're all exploring all the time and bringing in, make complex things simpler. 
and make workflows better. And and, and so that was a that, that was a major journey for me. And, you know, along the way, on it's like the journey with the PhD with people like Jenny McConnell and Paul Hodges. This this journey had been sitting around a table with some of the brightest mathematicians in the world and and problem solving with engineers and you know, and and that was a real learning experience for me too. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. All right, well. Let, let's dive into it. So we've, we've touched on it already, but for those listening in that are working in a highly cool team, what are some common misconceptions when it comes to communication or, or challenges and, and how do you sort of solve those challenges that we try to collaborate with and, and new team together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things on sailing is, you know, there, there certainly are differences that are come from any group that you work with. There's a massive up there for me, and that is often that, you know, the part of the or the what for is about, well, first of all, if, if they are different, get excited about it. It's a really good thing. Embrace it and seek to understand all points of view. And, you know, I, I say to people all the time, you're starting to feel wound up about something, you're starting to feel emotional about a difference of opinion, that's a good thing. Fit in it and listen to it. Why are you getting wound up about it? Well, you might have a complete if you just don't quite understand what person say or where they're coming from. Yeah. Because we use different languages, you know, you've got your S and C guys and you've got your head doc and your video, but you read the expert. Sometimes the language is different, but what they're all seeking or even fame actually the same is to the action that it gets in the way. And this is this is where these whiteboard sessions are really good because so what do you what do you really mean by that? And that's something Paul Hodges asked me at the end. What do you really mean by that? What do you really say? And there'd be times where I'd write a whole paragraph or something and he'd read it and say, give me that in a sentence. How could you say that whole paragraph about central pattern generators in this protocol? How could you say that in one sentence? And so often what you find is where people think there's, there's massive canyon between them or there's these differences, one is often not. Uh, two, if there is, it's a good thing. And understanding often helps you find common ground or a bridge. You know, one of the things I really try to facilitate and I'm doing in consulting is just make sure that systems and processes are set up to keep doing that. And and it, no matter how good the personalities are in the room, personalities and the skill sets, no matter how good the skill sets are, no matter how good the personalities are, they're all team players, they're all legal people. And you've still got to keep practicing it. Communication might happen at a whiteboard session, it might happen over a coffee, it might happen standing while you're watching a guy lift. You know? Getting a thin out of the thin area onto the gym. Really, really important. So they see the lifting, they're part of the lifting. See what the athletes are doing. They can talk technique, they can understand why you're using that shoe when you do that. What's that achieving? Like that sort of cross pollination has to be practiced. And if that's happening, differences are the problem. Good. Yeah, so I think that's one key message that I preach for better. Yep. And, and when you're starting out consulting at a new team or club and you're working with the staff to solve a problem, how, how often is it you're focusing on, on trying to enhance collab, you know, collaborative thinking and, and integration before yeah. I guess, giving them advice? Yeah, well, that's the first step. You get like you want to get everything on the table and get everything out of them that we can because I sort of all or ninety percent of the information is there. There's just been a little glitch. There's just been a little a little door not opened or a little path not taken that's seen a tendon compliance or stiffness lag behind muscle strength. Or some muscles get stronger but one other muscle lag behind. 
and it may think, oh, secondary imbalances have been generated. It's now moving to another symptomology, you know. So just mm-hmm. just getting all of the information out of them on the table is the most important thing because often then it's a matter of, well, what if we did this? And in there's your answer. And, 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 and I haven't really said any. There are times where you get all the information on the table and what becomes very apparent is some of the groups selling like, I really need to go down this route. And another page selling like slightly different route. What I'm able to say at times is, hey, I've done both and I've gone down this route really hard. And what I've found is in this phenotype or this player type, that route works really well. And I took the money on that one. Mm-hmm. But with this player type, I've run that route. And it's a 50-50, I reckon the better route, if, if you've got tyrant, or if you may have tyrant, the better routes here. So just that, weighing it all up, and pro- probably just a library of experience in the clinic, and then just a library of experience with being across just what the latest data is telling us in research, I can then put that on a plate to them and say, well, okay, you're looking at these two things, bear this in mind. What I'd see... What I'd read, you might want to take that in mind when you're deciding which way you want to go. Yeah, so that's 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 sort of how that works for me. Get everything you can first, and then is there something I've been had to have that's, that's worth their consideration? And, and you mentioned before that this takes practice for, for teams to, to be on the same page and, and collaborate their thinking, and, and part of that, that was a nice practical advice was, was physiotherapists going in the gym and working closely with the with the athletes there and, and asking questions to the high performance team around Q. What are some other practical tips that either SNCs can take on, you know, in terms of what they need to be doing to into getting into the medical room and, and asking questions, but yeah. also other practical tips to, to help? Just, yeah, great. So it's sort of like the cross-pollination thing works, and it's a language thing and an educational thing, but it'll, there'll be times when a strength coach might benefit from getting in the medical room and seeing perineal tendon under ultrasound shrouded in inflammatory product and acute tenosynovitis. This is why, you know, we we hear the word tendinopathy and enthesopathy and tenosynovitis, all these things thrown around in the medical world. And I don't know that we often provide the education that could be, or that could be optimal for the street staff to understand. So yeah, we've got a couple of different tendon pathologies here. This one we're going to crack on and keep going with pain, and then we're going to keep loading. This one needs V mode before it's then going to have to be slowly ramped, and we are going to shift from eccentrics to isometrics for a period of time. And that's just another example of where well, the physios can get in the gym and strength stuff, and then you know, really encourage them to come and have a look under the real time ultrasound at this this aponeuronic strain. Why this cast better take longer because it involves you know, pedastrocelial or onerotic plate. It's not just a part of harm. And letting them be part of that and understand why the physio might want to hold some things back but push some other things, you know, almost some volume equated training that at a lower percent MBC but higher volumes to a period before we then go hip. Yeah, so just, just trying to encourage an environment that, that, that gets people talking along those lines all the time and moving from one room to the other. I think you get really, really important. Yeah, and that's from I guess the informal sort of point of view in terms of meetings. What's your take on that? What how do you sort of conduct effective meetings where people feel comfortable to share their opinions and challenge each other? Yeah, so effective meetings. What's your take on an duration, perhaps, or yeah, meeting, 
running a meeting. Meetings, meetings can be a pain, can't they? I mean, we're also busy and when you get caught in a meeting that goes for three hours, you see online drive on and then you get that back. But they, they, they are a necessity, but short and sweet is better and well-agended and concise. So the, the, the short patrol right top to tail on the on a NIST with the priority at the top, literally the guys on the bottom, and yep, we're all on the same page. I think a weekly meeting like that is really important. And out of that might come you know, an awareness around, well, and see, we really need to talk about Jack a lot more. Let's do that afterwards, so let's do that at the end of the day or whatever. So the, 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 the short, regular, weekly, systematic reading, I think, is important. As a general from the farm here at Geelong, Scotty's really big on minimal meetings and getting the athletes out of the club. So they have a very relaxed professionalism here and it works unbelievably well. It's really impressive to watch. So they minimise the meetings, but they're really structured and they're targeted. But what does happen here is the whiteboard discussion and the more casual impromptu meetings and discussion, they're happening all the time. And, and, and you've clearly got a leadership group here that, Make that happen to a point where it probably means the medical staff and the coaches there really need to do left shoulder. So here, if there was a young player who was discovering to understand the importance of a particular part of his rehab, rather than have a big meeting with the group, have a big meeting the players who've already had the chat and still not quite on board, when you've got great leadership within your playing group, it's easy to say to a leader like a Joel Selwood or a Alfred Dangerfield or a Tommy Wilkins, hey, listen, I reckon Jack just needs a bit better understanding of why there's tendon loading, this extra stuff into the DJ and important. Can you chat and then done? That, that's an example of a sort of impromptu discussion that can sort of take away the need for more and more meetings that all the living daylights under the whole group. So, yeah, just, you know, it's just finding that balance. And then within the meetings, like the point you raised before, Jack, about intelligent people to speak, and it's difficult for some people. Some people, they don't want to speak. And it can take them quite a while to speak up in front of the group. So the more you can do it around a whiteboard in an informal way with a coffee in hand and you can just throw out little feelers and try to get people contributing in a way that they're comfortable is really, really important. And if someone's still got so much to offer and he's new to the group or is always going to be a bit reticent to contribute to the group, well, that's the sort of guy who after the meeting you know, they have a little chat with him one on one and say, how do, you, how do you feel about that approach we're going to take? Is there anything we're missing? Yeah, we'll do it. So, like, and it's it's fine for his contribution to come back to the group through that dialogue. <laughs> you know, we, when, we're not all alpha personalities, we're not all extroverts, we don't want to lay it all on the table in front of the group. But the people that don't want to do that often then got as much or more to offer. <laughs> but yeah. it's like the onus is on us to try that. Yeah, so that's something I said. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. For, thank you for sharing that. That's a great insight. And, and you can, I feel anyway, I'm sure the listeners would agree that it, straight away you're excited by the fact that there's a lot of preparation that goes into the meetings and therefore it's it's thorough and, and detailed and, and organised rather than just doing a meeting for the sake of it. Those whiteboard sessions typically... How many would you cover in, in a week, do you think, in a, in a high-performance medical team? And and is it a matter of a, a one staff member or an athlete coming up and saying, hey, I really want to you know, discuss this problem and, and just getting the, the pen out and, and getting to it? Or is it more formal than that? Like how impromptu are they and, and how formal are they? Can, they, they? They can be formal to a point where on Tuesday you're saying, hey, on Thursday we better do a whiteboard leading on. Is multi-directional shoulder and or whatever. Bad. 
So we'll lock that in for Thursday afternoon when the when the boys are with you. And you know, if we're doing something like that, I'll normally go over on the train across and and bring him in, and we'll all stick around and we'll, we'll get into it. What we send to whiteboard session is often you've just finished looking at a player, and his day to day feeding physio is right there, um, and he's watched all of that. And you really want to round it out and make sure that player understand that you and the physio are all on the same page and he's got some work to do so again the player has got some work to do so you might just grab that whiteboard then and then in the treatment room and say, so our goals with this are this a and b how whether and then happen this and this and I, and I find visually just writing it on the board and drawing a picture of a bone and a tendon or whatever and just letting them have that visual and, and see See you and the physio talk about it. So, you know, so Jack, you've, you've just put that loading up. So you're going to hold his high speed running for a few days while you're letting him accommodate to that. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That, that, that sort of informal education of the athlete reinforcing what, you know, what the physios already thought probably said to be athlete, but doing it in front of him there. He sees you collaborating. He gets the key message. I'll often get them to, hey, so just take a photo of that on your phone, a photo of the picture on the whiteboard that's got the section reps. That sort of thing is happening daily. And it just helps any chances of miscommunication. It helps minimise those. So, yeah, the whiteboard gets a threshing in one, but in play for a formal and a very informal way. And how did the whiteboard method come to you? Was that something that someone passed on, a previous info mentor, or is it something that came intuitively and through practice you found effective? Okay. So there's probably two ways that was impressed upon me. One not great, one really good. The first one was a math teacher I had back at school who found it was incredibly intelligent but found it hard to even communicate with the group. He was like a high-end math teacher that struggles socially. And... He would come in and, and just say, work through the book. So you'd work through the book, and if you had a problem in calculus or something, you'd take it up there and say, you can't sort this out. And he'd walk up to the blackboard, and he'd write the entire solution out without saying a word, and he'd point at the answer, and he'd sit back down. And that's not bad in general. <laughs> that's right. You know, we all be saying, oh, I shouldn't say bad. I shouldn't say bad. That's just one example. Yeah. And then the good example was working with Paul Hodges. Paul's a big whiteboarder. So in my very first meeting with him, so I called him and said, look, I want to lift a number of people keep control and sprinters, and I want to look at hamstrings, I want to do this. And he said, well, look, at a crossing the Prince of Wales Research Institute where I'm working at the moment, we'll spend a week working in the lab together, we'll get to know one another, we'll talk through what your questions are, and we'll see whether or not this is a PhD. So I just ruled off a week to patients and flew over to Sydney and spent a week with Paul over there in the lab. It was awesome. It was great fun. But it was often either on a whiteboard or while we're drinking red wine at a restaurant on a napkin. He's a very clear thinker. So he would always be writing down, so this flows from this, flows from this. And it was almost how he expressions himself or how he would get his mind in order and then presented to me all of the challenges and all the possible directions that something could go in. He was very good at it. He seemed a very good communicator and very good at making me realize more of the things that I hadn't considered. Mm-hmm. And a whiteboard with this tool for that. And, and, and I'm sure still is. So that's probably where the Blackboard whiteboard thing for me came from. And, and now I use the fridge at home with the kids and they, and they hate it. And it sort of flowed into family life. Yeah. 
Fantastic. I'll be definitely firing that tactic because there's, there's plenty of whiteboards around. So yeah, there you go. Practice and like, like you mentioned, it's a good visual, a good process to do with it with the team and staff over with the athlete as well. In terms of going back for the consultancy work that you do, I imagine over your time you've you face a lot of cases for the first time, whether it be a complex injury, and it's really challenging your processes because you haven't had specific example of, of how to rehab that injury or how to provide advice on that. What, what would be your process for practitioners when they're faced with a, a new problem uh, and yeah. to yeah, have that clear thinking and then to be able to act quickly because you might have to present on the athlete and start the rehab the next day? Yeah, yeah, no. So, you know, you can't, you can't have enough knowledge. There's always going to be things you've never seen before. Roads you've got to go down, you've never been down. And do it alone. No matter how smart you are, don't do it alone. One, because your heads are better than mole. I bring in other people and expertise. And also, do not wear the burden and the emotional strain of making a critical decision with, a, with an athlete or a piece of horse flesh worth millions and millions of dollars. Don't bear that responsibility on your own involve other stakeholders because it's it, it's too much and you won't think as clearly and you won't bounce ideas around and up. So I'll, I'll always go, say, okay, what do I know? Where are the gaps in my knowledge? Who's got more knowledge in those spaces? How can I drag them into this and lean on them and leverage up work? Because like you said, I've got 24 hours to pull this together. So it's not like I've got time to go and do a PhD. <laughs> I've got to have some answers for this athlete. Right. And, and there's times where I'll say to an athlete, hey, I think it's A and B, more A than B. We've got a couple of routes we could take. If we could go down this route, we could go down that route. And I'm thinking we'll be going here, but there's some stuff I want to explore here because I don't want to miss the opportunity to round out your rehab as best we can. Give me till tomorrow. I'm going to talk to a couple of people and I'm going to get across how we could dovetail there, but how we could integrate there, but whether or not we go one first, yeah. so whether we're running a conjugated model, a linear model, whatever we're going to do. I need to talk to a couple of people. Yeah, buy yourself some time. Yeah, you know, buy, buy yourself some time. Be open about the fact that you're exploring everything you can. And because it shows your level of expertise, it also shows you're not closed minded and that you're going to do everything you can to get there. But at the, at the end of the day, that's what they need to know. Well, they will, they will back you in if they think your skills and you're exploring all avenues and you're collaborating. They know you've got their back. And in, you know, in the end, they've got yours. So, so, so I think that's really important. Don't, don't try and do it on your own. Leverage off experts in those finite fields. You know, it might be, you know, it might be doing some cutting-edge sort of tender loading that really hasn't been explored as much in the literature and you've got a strong preference for it and seeing it work and you're not quite sure on this sort of pathology whether you should go as hard at it or whatever. You might end up calling Keith Barr in Sacramento and say, hey, mate, I know most of your work is really on engineered tendons in Petri dishes, but what have you, what have you done with this amount of time and attention? How much load in the... What have you seen in terms of collagen expression in response to this sort of activity? Because we're thinking of doing something. Talking to people around that can be really quite helpful. And they're only too happy to. Yeah. Is that something you've found over the years that you'll reach out to some external? And, and how do you go about doing that? What's your favorite form of communication to, if you haven't got a relationship, I guess, with that practitioner? Yeah. Difficult if you don't have a relationship. I've, I've been lucky along the way that there's sort of the work club done in both research and in, in the field means I've, I've got some good points of contact so I can easily get, shoot a text message or an email and set up a Zoom call or whatever and just have that quick impromptu discussion. If it's someone I'm reaching out to for the first time, I'll go off their 
contact information on a research article or LinkedIn. And I'll just throw it out there. Hey, just reaching out because I need your help. I'm looking at this. Is any chance you have a chance? Surprising how quickly people respond. I mean, you know, I've reached out to some of the preeminent researchers in a number of different areas from time to time. And at times I was sort of, oh, this is the part in this guy. This guy's, this guy, this guy's not going to have a minute for me. He's frying far bigger here. And not only do they get back to you, but they're incredibly giving of their knowledge and their time. Yeah, there you go. That should give some confidence for, for those listening in to, to reach out. Like you mentioned, it does take the strain off the practitioner as well and allows you to be more effective. Before we start to wrap up wrap up the interview, mate, is there anything on integrating performance and, and medical science for team success that we haven't touched on that you'd like to, to share? No, look, I feel like we've talked a lot about it. Just to, just to one of the things that I suppose helps pull all those teams together is just, you know, the clarity around... And data you're going to collect, why you're going to collect it, when it what sorts of error involved in it, what are the thresholds at which you're going to intervene. Like those sort of nitty-gritty discussions are pretty important because when you've got to make a call on a player, you want to have already had those chats. So I'm seeing a drop in a particular parameter. I'm seeing MDIC's drop 18%. It's unilateral. There's no load that explains it. The plan's reporting some symptoms. And what are you going to do it in today or this week? When you want to have already had the discussions around what sort of errors involved in that legend, what's real, what's not real, where in the thresholds for changing trading loads and modifying trading loads, we all want those chronic trading loads to be high to do robust plays, but we also don't want to break them. You know, we're balancing that all of the time and the performance team and the medical team are probably looking at it from different perspectives. Good teams I've worked with, they all want good chronic training modes that have the players out there working with the coaches all the time, doing the work the coaches believe they need to do to work. I mean, that's not where. So when you've got the performance team thinking we need more of this running or more of this lifting more, then you've got the medical team sort of saying, well, we want to get them to these thresholds before we do that, or we might increase the risk. Part of that discussion around what are our core philosophies and what's what measures we're going to take and what's the area involved in those measures, how hard are we going to push? And it's how hard are we going to push going to depend upon, and I believe it should, uh, the player's profile. If, if, if you've done a really detailed profile, then you have more of an understanding as to whether a player can cope with an acute to chronic ratio that's you know, at point eight and one point seven. Yeah. Well, it's different because guys can push, can take massive accelerations in world without arguing risk and others can. And so your athlete profiling, I think, is a, is the cornerstone of bringing all these groups together up and getting everyone on the same page about what we're going to do, generic team program, but more so how we're going to individualize that program and what we're going to base in the individualization on to get the most out of each player. Because you can't accelerate everyone at the same rate. So one of the things we were really big on this year, the last season at Geelong, was we want to do detailed profiling. We've got the oldest steps in history. We want to do detailed profiling so we understand where each player's at and we're going to individualise and periodise their programs based on that profile. There's a little bit of sort of press around the fact that we drilled players out, we did this and that, players were ready to play but didn't. That's because we were doing things in the background around that profiling to develop strength reserves that we thought those players needed. And just, just being really clear about those measurements and those planned around individualisation was a major part of having not just such a healthy list, that everyone's firing on all cylinders for fibers. I mean, that was, we want a really healthy list, but we need... Um, our guns 
blazing in finals, not not sore or tired or not at the best. So those those early discussions around profiling and monitoring what the data really means, what are the errors in your data and where are your thresholds for change. They created a foundation, to be honest, that turned us well through the whole year. And there were times when under pressure you can get a bit wobbly. Yeah. And to their credit, to their credit, sometimes it was actually the coaching staff that came back and said, hey, don't feel pressured about this. You told us you were going to do this. You told us whenever. Stick, stick to what you planned. Don't feel pressured by us. Yeah. Which, which was a really good dynamic. And what about the players in that aspect, of, you know, in the heat of the moment when they want to play, were they backing the coaches in or? <laughs> isn't, isn't that a classic? So, so we laid out the plans, and there were some particular players who were really quite talking to with and sat down early, and we laid out a plan, and there was the initial sort of, oh, really? And it's like, well, here's the reason why. Like, yeah, okay, I'll get it. Yeah, I'm on board. And then you're around six or whatever, and, it, and it's time to rest the player and just do something a bit different or whatever, even though he's going really well. Going really well. And, and, and the player, you know, a couple of the players, they should say, oh, do we really have to? Like, I'm feeling great and all that. And I said, yeah, look, we don't, we don't have to do anything. You can play. This is advice. This was our plan. It's all about the end of the season. This was our plan. This is why. This is what we're basing it on. At the end of the day, it's your call to make with your coaches. You guys make it. But this is what we've got mapped out, and this is why we think we need to do this now. And they do it, and then two or three weeks later, they're going, oh, my God, I feel so much better. I didn't realise. I mean, you know, we, we had some players hit three best on... Um, GPS high speed and high speed distances and that sort of thing last year and late in the season who, who, who were well over 30. And I think it's a credit to the performance of the medical team here that they put a plan in place and they stuck to the guns and they saw it through and and, and with that, how hard were the players working if they weren't playing during those periods but they were healthy? But to, to like you mentioned, you wanted them blazing and fit and firing for the, the pointy end of the season, which, which clearly they were. Yeah, behind the scenes, were they were they resting or and doing less, or were they actually doing a fair bit of work? No, well, let me say, definitely not resting. They might they might actually be denoting in some ways. They might be being rested to a point in terms of letting them freshen up, but there's hard work being done in the background on strength or tendon loading or something else. You know, like they're being loaded aggressively, but in a smart way. Specific to their need. Yeah. Now, if there's someone that in the period of not playing, they actually need to do a whole bunch of lactate tolerance work or something, or well, then 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 working hard. Then you know what we see is a traditional run to your vomit thing or whatever. But it's not really about that. It's not so much on work hard thing or whatever. It's just about working hard at what it is you need to work on. Sometimes it might be fresh enough. Build your strength to ramp up your tendon load, yeah. So that yeah. so that this chronic bronchial tendon that late in the season has always interfered with continued strength work and running fast. You've kept playing, but it's always gotten away. Let's not have that this year. Let's have no. Let's have nothing interfering with your ability to express max velocity. Let's set you up to do that. So it's just yeah, working hard, but it's not in the way. You know, you hear all sorts. Oh, we flog them and more we give them a game off or whatever in the bye. We ran them in the ground or it's about ball and tackle in terms of how you go about that. 
Yeah, I think some of the old footy head, old, the old traditionalists and fans that watch the game, that's what hard hard work is, but it's about smart hard work. Yeah. That doesn't tell the individual's hands. Yeah, love it. Uh, that's, a, that's a great way to, to wrap up what's a fascinating topic and yeah, great to have you, you share your experiences and, and, and also insights into how you think, Steve. So I really appreciate you coming on. Last three questions, mate. In your work line, what are your pet peeves? What annoys you? Oh, missing stuff. I hate garden that's very emission. It just, you know, when there's there's been a niggle or a flag and something trending down and, and you just missed it or you weren't strong enough in your conviction to act and get on the thumb foot straight away. The biggest mistakes I've ever made have not been from action. They've been from inaction where I've sat on my hands for another week mm. or I've taken a more conservative approach. Act, not blindly. But yeah, so that's a pet peeve when I don't, see a trend in the data that I should have and I should have acted and I took a more conservative approach and didn't I hate that. Yeah. 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 Was it was it just that question? Pet pet peeps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good one. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. then uh, favorite way to spend your day off. Definitely the golf pool. Get out there on the golf and try and make that middle white ball go where it's supposed to. Nah, yeah, it's great. So that and then and a day with the family. I will I'm getting out family and doing stuff with them, but golf Golf's right up there too. And no doubt you've got plenty in the pipeline for 2023, mate. But what are you excited about for the year ahead? Yeah, look, excited about what we can do here at the Cats in terms of the building program and players further. There's plenty of upside. Or obviously, we think they can continue performing at this elite level. So we're really excited about that. And the uptake of Kangatip overseas in, in the UK and in Europe and the US has just been mushrooming. So we're really excited about supporting all the new users there across a variety of sports. So those two things will uh, really keep me busy. And we'll have to sneak in a little and see if I've got a family beer or I'll just make sure we keep in balance of things right. Turn Jack. Very good. Awesome, Abel. Yeah. Th- thank you again for, for coming on. and. Thank you for the listeners for tuning in. If you tuned into this live chat halfway through or just at the end there, make sure to listen to the, it from the very beginning. There's been gems from the from the very start. So this will live on our YouTube channel and we'll publish it on our podcast in the next couple of weeks. And you can join us for our next live chat with David Joyce. That'll be Thursday the 2nd of March at 3 p.m. So I'll see you guys then. Thanks again, Steve. Thanks, Jack. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane and I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, yeah, game changes whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah, yeah.
Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with academy member Rama Davies, the strength conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was, uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering, what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah it certainly yeah has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is, is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that, in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then. And, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things. And, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.